millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You will doubtless find it hard to believe that, at an age when philosophical reasoning is usually the last thing on a person's mind, I had such serious thoughts as I had about every aspect of my life. And yet, it is true that my greatest pleasure then was to shut myself up alone and write down everything that came into my head. Not long ago, I came across some of these writings again, and I confess to you that I was tremendously surprised to find in them ideas far beyond the capacities of a little girl. They were filled with doubts and questions which I posed to myself about all the things I found hard to understand. I never resolved them to my satisfaction but I kept doggedly seeking the answers that I could not find. And if my conduct since then has not shown great judgment, at least I have the consolation of knowing that I once wanted very much to acquire it. Memoirs of Hortense Mancini, 1675 Hello and welcome to the half. Episode 5.9, Hortense Mancini, The Runaway Mazarinette. Last time, we finished the story of Roxelana, the enslaved Christian girl who became the founder of the Ottoman Empire's Sultanate of Women. As I said at the start of that mini-series, Roxelana is going to be an exception to the rule of this season. She married her lover and became his consort, From here on out, it will be back to mistresses that remained just that. Mistresses. So far in this season, we've been to ancient Greece and Rome, medieval Japan, and the early Ottoman Empire. But for the next few weeks, we'll be entering a time and a place that many consider to be the high watermark for interesting mistresses. Early modern Europe, and most particularly, France and England. The 17th century was a time of high tumult for both kingdoms. Both had been torn apart by sectarian civil wars that had weakened the power of the French monarchy, and saw England briefly replaced with a republic. While England remained something of a backwater on the continent's fringe, France emerged from the Thirty Years' War as Western Europe's dominant power under Louis XIV, overtaking the likes of Habsburg, Spain and Austria. It was not only the dominant military power, but also culturally and socially hegemonic, with courtly life centred at the opulent palace of Versailles. This was an era of absolute monarchy in France, where divine right to rule was asserted and ruthlessly enforced. All political power was concentrated at the centre, making proximity to the monarch the be-all and end-all. 
This led to a number of powerful queens, most notably Anne of Austria, but more famous were the mistresses, many of whom were so prominent that they were given a special title, maîtresse en titre, or official mistress. While there were no laws on who could become a maîtresse en titre, social convention dictated that they shared some general characteristics. Firstly, they were well-born. To catch the king's eye, you had to be at the right events, be able to mingle in polite society, and have the kinds of charm and graces that are honed from birth by the upper crust. Second, they had to be able to master the power of credit. Put simply, this was the power of connections and favours. Being able to parlay who they knew and what they knew, to exert influence, win trust, and gain access to the kinds of spaces that would enable them to catch and keep the eye of the king. You had to keep careful track of your own ranking within the courtly structure, and that of all of those around you. Mastering this art required a deft touch, careful planning, and a ruthless determination to climb above all the competition and shut the door firmly behind you. France didn't invent the idea of an official mistress, nor did it hold a monopoly on them. But as the cultural capital of the continent, the French model was the one that was exported and copied across Europe. Now, we'll discuss all of this in more detail in the next series, where we'll be discussing probably the most famous of all the French mistresses, but today we'll be looking at a woman born in Italy, raised in the court of the Sun King, and who became the mistress of England's most famous womanising monarch. But before we get to that, I'd like to thank all of my amazing Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast where you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where we post bonus content from the episode, like pictures and maps. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. familiar with the Three Musketeers, know that the rule of Louis XIII was dominated by his talented chief minister, Cardinal Richelieu. When he died, he was replaced by his deputy, an Italian cardinal called Giulio Mazzarini, better known to history as Jules Mazarin. After he had established himself in power, he invited his extended family to join him in Paris. Among them were seven nieces that would become famed as the Mazarinettes. As a cardinal, Mazarin could not have official children. The days of the Borgias were long past, but that didn't mean he couldn't partake in a bit of dynastic marriage-making. These girls and young women were key to his plans to firmly entrench himself at the apex of the French political establishment. This is particularly important as the new king, Louis XIV, had only just entered his majority, 
and therefore relied a great deal on the advice of his mother, Anne of Austria, and his chief minister to help him rule. This is how, in 1653, the six-year-old Hortensia, soon to be Frankified as Hortense Mancini, arrived in Paris. She and her siblings that came along with her were the children of Mazarin's sister, Girolama, and her husband, Lorenzo Mancini, a Roman nobleman famed for his love of astronomy and necromancy. En route, she stayed with her elder sister, Laure Victoire, who had already married a French nobleman and settled in Provence. She showed Hortense and her siblings what French life had to offer, but also impressed upon them exactly what was expected of them, what they had to do, and who they had to impress to achieve the same level of success that she had. When she arrived in Paris, she was taken to the Mazarin Palace, an incredibly opulent and expensively furnished residence that is today part of the French National Library. Mazarin was a student of the Medici, and like them believed that the best way to maintain oneself in power is through sheer and overwhelming financial muscle. This meant that he had to have the grandest palace, outside that of the king of course, and he had to use the powers of the state to ensure that his enemies faced financial ruin for crossing him. Hortense was brought up largely in the lively salons of the Louvre, as well as the convent of visitation at Faubourg Saint-Jacques, where she and her elder sister Marie were given a liberal-minded education in French, literature, the arts, and of course, Catholicism. Both of her parents died before she reached the age of 10, meaning that all decisions about her future lay in the hands of her uncle. He, though, was more preoccupied with her sister Marie, who had entered into a passionate romance with King Louis. The two were obsessed with each other, but marriage was absolutely impossible. Louis was promised to Maria Theresa of Spain, and there was nothing that either of them could do about it. Marie was sent south to La Rochelle to keep her out of the way while the marriage arrangements were made, and even though the two continued to exchange letters and gifts, including a puppy, there was nothing that could save this doomed love affair. Seeing her sister go through this ordeal profoundly affected the ten-year-old Hortense. She was not old enough to understand what was happening, but she did her best to support her sister. She writes in her memoirs, quote, All that I could do to help her, since I could see she was miserable, and I loved her deeply, was to weep with her over her misfortune, until such a time as she could help me weep over mine. For her, she came to realise, romance was dead. It was something unattainable for someone like her. All it could lead to was the kind of pain racking her sister's soul. I didn't mean, of course, that marriage was off the table. Far from it. Since when did romance have anything to do with noble marriage? She was beautiful, vibrant, and had the kind of charm that drew men to her, like the sun. And, most importantly, she didn't appear to be as headstrong as her sister. Now that her uncle had finally sorted out the young king's marriage, his attention passed to his young niece. There was no shortage of suitors. First out of the gates was none other than King Charles of England and Scotland, but he had expressed this wish while still in exile and Mazarin wasn't so keen on placing a bet on him becoming king, and by the time he realised his mistake, it was too late. There was also the Duke of Savoy, the king's cousin, but that didn't come off either. The man eventually chosen was a far less exalted figure, the rather extravagantly named Armand Charles de la Porte de la Meilleraye. 
He was a nephew of Cardinal Richelieu and came from a long line of soldiers. Rather than Hortense marrying a man that would raise her station, she very much elevated her husband, who was raised to the rank of Duke following the marriage. He was, to put it plainly, a terrible choice. A decade and a half older than her, he was a socially awkward man and a fervently devout follower of a very extreme Catholic doctrine. Perhaps worried at her sister's dalliance, Mazarin thought that marrying Hortense to a man of unimpeachably disturbed morality would keep her out of trouble and check her fun-loving personality. All it did, though, was impose years of misery on his niece. Even Armand Charles's own father advised against the marriage, but Mazarin, who was now on his deathbed, was immovable. Not just that, but he doubled down by naming Armand Charles as his heir, naming him also as the next Duke Mazarin, meaning that Hortense was, by extension, Duchess Mazarin. The two settled in the Mazarin Palace and immediately became a social centre around which people congregated. These included her friends, family and admirers, and it was these that her new husband most particularly hated. He had been obsessed with her for years, ticking off the days before she could come of age and he could make his move. Now that he had won his quote-unquote prize, he had no wish for others to enjoy her. So, he made every effort to remove her from Parisian society, and instead accompany him on long trips away to their various other holdings. I can't put this any better than Hortense does in her memoirs, so I will quote it at length here. Quote, During the first three or four years of our marriage, I made three trips to Alsace and as many to Brittany, not to mention several others to Nevers, Maine, Bourbon, Sedan, and elsewhere. Perhaps I would have never tired of that vagabond life had he not taken undue advantage of my accommodating nature. Several times he had me travel 200 leagues while I was with child, and even very near to giving birth. My relatives and my friends, who were worried on my account about the dangers to which he was exposing my health, would point them out to me when I came to Paris in the strongest terms they could muster, but for a long time it was to no avail. What would they have said if they had known that I could not speak to a servant without his being sent away the next day, that I could not receive two visits in a row from the same man, or that the doors of the house would be closed to him? that if I showed any preference for one of my maids over the others, she was immediately taken away from me. If I called for my coach and he did not see fit to let me go out, he forbade with a smile that the horses be hitched up, and joked with me about that prohibition until the time to go where I wanted to go had passed. He would have liked me to see nobody in the world but him. Above all, he could not abide my visiting his relatives or mine, because then they would get involved and start defending my interests and his, because they did not approve of his conduct any more than did mine. And as soon as he knew that I was happy in some place, he would make me leave it, no matter what reasons there might be to keep me there. While he was arranging for his departure in Paris, he learned from the spies with whom I was always surrounded that I was greatly enjoying myself. This made him sick with displeasure, and he sent for me post-haste. His father was unwilling to let me leave, saying that one must abstain from women while taking the waters. He swooned with vexation upon receiving this response, and after several couriers, his father having finally let me leave, I went to accompany him to Bourbon, 
where I spent a month cooped up in a room with him, watching him take his waters without even so much as visiting Madame la Princesse, who was there and to whom he has the honour of being related. At first, he had been unable to believe that it was his father who had kept me in Brittany, and no matter how much assurance of it he subsequently received, he always maintained that I had preferred to amuse myself there rather than come and console him in his illness. It would have been easy for me to defend myself against his accusations if he had been willing to listen to me. But that is what he was most eager to avoid, because he turned out to be entirely in the wrong whenever things were explained, and he never wanted to admit that he had been mistaken. This is controlling behaviour that is, I'm sure, as troubling for you to hear as it was for me to read. It is a timeless story of coercive, abusive behaviour that must have been appalling to live through. It was so extreme that even his contemporaries, who were hardly feminist bastions of the Me Too movement, were shocked. And it was not only Hortense that was a victim of Armand Charles' controlling behaviour and bizarre views. He thought that milkmaids on his lands were being too sexually provocative about the way they milked cows, that priests shouldn't have female servants, that his own household staff not be allowed to talk or laugh unnecessarily. Hortense did her duty and produced children, three daughters, Marie-Charlotte, Marianne and Marie-Olympe, and then, much to her husband's delight, a son, Paul Jules. But nothing was enough for her husband and his paranoia only seemed to grow with time. He became obsessed with the idea that she would leave him, and so sought to prevent it by taking all of her money and inheritance away from her. Quote, Every day I saw immense sums of money, priceless furniture, offices, governorships, and all the rich remains of my uncle's fortune disappear, the fruit of his labours and the reward for his services. He blamed her for being wasteful, saying that she could not be trusted with wealth or jewels. She describes one episode in her memoirs. Quote, he took advantage of his opportunity to lay hold of my jewels one evening when I came home very late from the city. When I desired to know the reason before going to bed, he told me that he feared I would give some of them away, liberal as I was, and that he had taken them only in order to add more to them. I replied to him that one could only wish that his liberality were as well-ordered as mine, that I was satisfied with my jewels as they were, and that I would not go to bed until he returned them to me. But seeing that no matter what I said, he replied only with bad jokes, spoken with a malicious smile, and in a tone which seems serene, but is actually very bitter. Gaslighting, a tactic as old as time. Her family was getting increasingly concerned for her welfare, which only increased her husband's efforts to keep her away from them. They also locked on in horror as he squandered the family wealth on poor investments and wasteful donations to the church that, more often than not, only saw the enrichment of greedy clergy. They encouraged her to take action, which she started to do in 1666, with a formal request for a legal separation of their property. The new chief minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who had jurisdiction over this request, was not keen on the idea. Women, having their own property, separate from their husbands, whatever next. He ordered them to enter into mediation. The one compromise that her husband agreed to was allowing Hortense to employ her own servants and allow her to come and go as she pleased. An agreement he immediately broke, physically restraining her when she attempted to leave the house. Quote, 
He threw himself in front of me and pushed me very roughly in order to block my way. But my grief and vexation gave me extraordinary strength, and I broke through, even though he was strong as well. And though he screamed like mad out the window to close all the doors and especially the gate of the courtyard, nobody, when they saw me all in tears, dared to obey him. This time, it was agreed that she be allowed to stay in a convent for her own safety, but even then this was merely a different kind of prison. Her husband may not have been there, but she was still not in control of her own life, and the king and his chief minister were still minded to support her husband. Hortense realised that her fun-loving personality, good looks and charms, were her best weapons, and so she flaunted them as best she could. She received visitors and regaled them with her tale of woe, and they repeated her story to their friends. And so the legend began of the convent escapades of Duchess Mazarin, locked away, oppressed by a boorish and overbearing abusive husband, and watched over by disapproving nuns. She was not the only woman at this time suffering in these conditions, and so she joined forces with a fellow victim, the teenage Marie Sidonie, Marquise de Courcelles, to launch legal challenges against their husbands. Thus began a long, bitter legal battle, where all of the inbuilt advantages lay with Armand Charles. She did, though, win an early victory to allow her to return to the Mazarin Palace, with Armand Charles exiled to the Paris Arsenal. But even then, he would not allow her any joy. When, for example, she began to put on plays at a small theatre within the palace, he had the place demolished when she went away. What a bastard. She tried appealing directly to the king, which also didn't work, and then received some really bad news. Her husband was countersuing her, and the court that was due to hear that case was stuffed with his cronies. There was only one thing to do. She had to do a runner. On the 13th of June, 1668, Hortense Mancini fled the capital, leaving her children behind. We don't know how much of a painful part in this was. Her memoirs are strangely silent on the topic. Her only companions were a maid, and they were both disguised as men, with her brother also providing her with a carriage and a squire called Couberville as an escort. Together, they slipped out of the city, heading for her sister Marie's home in Italy. At 3am, the king was awoken by an indignant Armand Charles, who demanded that the king send soldiers to drag his wife home. But, for once, Louis sided with Hortense. He would not get involved. The journey was long, uncomfortable, and nerve-wracking in the extreme. Hortense travelled as fast as she could and rarely stopped to rest. It was not until they reached Nancy in the independent Duchy of Lorraine that they could relax. The Duke there ignored envoys sent that demanded that he send Hortense back, and instead provided them with an armed escort across the Alps. There were rumours that Amon Charles had paid mercenaries to kidnap her, but instead he did something far worse, a public attack on his wife in the popular press, accusing her of adultery and even an incestuous relationship with her brother. Friends that aided her escape were punished and suffered greatly. Hortense, though, had escaped. 
and her reunion with Marie in Milan must have been a joyous relief. Freed from the shackles that had bound her for so long, she enjoyed everything that Italy had to offer. Living it up in Milan and Venice, where society flocked to see Hortense. Marie recalled in her memoirs, quote, People's eagerness to see Madame Mazarin was incredible. Most things do not really live up to one's expectations of them, or else when one gets in the habit of seeing them, their luster tends to wear off. This was not the case with my sister's beauty. It seemed even greater than people had imagined it to be, and they discovered new charms each time they saw her. Hortense was having a really lovely time, compounded by a fling with Courbeville, the young squire that had accompanied her during her long flight from Paris. She wasn't exactly subtle about it, and this, coupled with mud-flinging reports in the Parisian press that made their way over the Alps, began to apply pressure on Marie's husband, Lorenzo Giacopelliano. Hortense was forced to break off the affair with the squire when his behaviour became rather possessive, and settled down to a happy life with her sister in the Colonna Palace in Rome. They became a social mecca, drawing in visitors, sponsoring theatrical productions, and becoming a favoured subject for artists. Indeed, demand for portraits of her was so high that a duel was nearly fought over one of them. She scandalised society with her bold fashion choices, and became quite the local celebrity, eclipsing even our old friend Christina of Sweden, who was also in Rome at the time. While she was living at large, though, her financial situation was not quite so joyous. So, when her brother returned to Paris to get married, she went with him to settle her legal troubles once and for all. Even so, she took her time. She and her brother tarried for time in Nevers in the Loire Valley, enjoying banquets, parties and quite a bit of dancing. All things that her husband detested. It's almost as if she was trying to provoke him. And if that was so, she got her wish. He got his lawyers to draw up a warrant for her arrest. But when this was presented to the city council at Nevers, they told them exactly where he could stick it. They were backed up by the king, who made it clear that Hortense should be allowed to travel freely and at her own pace. Right there, Armand Charles seems to have lost command of what was left of his senses letting all of Parisian society see a side of him that previously was only exhibited to his wife and servants. He set off for the Mazarin Palace, armed with a hammer, a knife, and a whole load of black paint. When he arrived, he went up to the second-floor gallery that was filled with artistic treasures acquired by Hortense's uncle. Works by da Vinci, Titian, Correggio, Raphael, basically every Renaissance master you can think of. Over the course of a day, he slashed tapestries through paint over portraits and hacked pieces off statues, taking special care to castrate any genitalia he could find. He spent all day in a frenzy, stopping only when exhaustion prevented him from carrying on. When King Louis heard about this vandalous rampage, he sent soldiers to survey the damage. What they found was an orgy of destruction an art collection that had once been the envy of Europe destroyed in a day. Public opinion flipped overnight. They now saw what kind of a man Armand Charles was, and were far more inclined to be sympathetic towards his wife. The Count of Bussy wrote, quote, The world has never seen a more deserving cuckold than Duke Mazarin, and every day of his life adds new esteem to that which I had for his wife, 
when she preferred to stay out in the street rather than see him anymore. She was placed under royal protection at the Abbey of Notre-Dame-de-Lis, and there she was on her best behaviour, all while her husband was castigated in the popular press and caught gossip. After two months, she was summoned by King Louis, who gave her a choice. She could have an annual pension of 24,000 francs if she wished to return to Italy, but he urged her instead to stay in France and reconcile with her husband. He promised that she would have control over her own affairs and would not have to follow any of his instructions. Her king and her friends urged her to accept these terms, but she decided to take the money and go. In her own words, quote, I could not resolve myself to return to him, that no matter what precautions might be taken against his moody temperament, I would have to face 20 small acts of cruelty every day, about which it would not be fitting to trouble his majesty, and that I accepted with extreme gratitude the pension which it pleased him to grant me. So she departed Paris for a second time, though this time with far less secrecy. She was greeted by Roman society on her return as a conquering heroine. They had missed her greatly. Life just wasn't as fun or unpredictable without Duchess Mazarin around. They rejoiced in the French liberty that Hortense exhibited. But after a while, even they grew tired of the unconventional actions of Hortense, not to mention the company she kept. During the long hot summers, she scandalised society by swimming in the Tiber with her sister and friends, and counted among her companions the flamboyantly bisexual Philippe of Lorraine, who had carried on an affair with the king's brother, the Duke of Orléans. He was now sleeping with Marie, while Hortense herself began a fling with his brother, the Chevalier de Marsin. This all caused, as I think you might imagine, quite a bit of tension in Marie's marriage, eventually leading to Marie copying a move from Hortense's playbook and fleeing Rome, fearing for her safety. Hortense did everything she could to persuade her sister to stay, but seeing that her mind was made up, she determined that she would not have to make this journey alone, like she had had to do. Only a few years earlier, she had fled France to take refuge in Italy. Now, she was helping her sister to do the same, but in reverse. She was leaving the safety of Italy, her homeland, and returning to her husband's country. With a maid each, they fled Rome, once again dressed in men's clothes, swiftly and secretly, and travelled to Civitavecchia, boarding a boat bound for France. Marie's husband Lorenzo, just as Hortense's husband had, sent men after his wife. But they reckoned without King Louis, who guaranteed their safe passage and refuge. But while both of their husbands were at large, each intent on getting their wives back under their control, the two could never be really safe. And though they were nominally under the king's protection, he was pretty distracted by his various wars to pay too much attention to the Mazarinettes. In one town, they were accosted by an agent of Armandchal and were forced to flee on foot into the woods to escape him. France, it seemed, was not safe enough, and the king was getting rather tired of having to deal with Marie, Hortense, and their husbands. Marie was determined to have an audience with her former lover and so set off alone, uninvited to Paris to see the king, while Hortense, perhaps more prudently, stayed in the Duchy of Savoy. Its duke, Charles Emmanuel, had long been fond of her. If you remember, he had been a contender for her hand in marriage back in the day. 
There she could find safe harbour, away from the reach of her estranged husband. Savoy was an independent duchy, with its territory straddling the modern Franco-Italian border. Hortense was used to the vibrant high society of Paris and Rome, so Chambéry must have been a bit of a culture shock. A small city at the foot of the Alps, dominated by a medieval castle that looked over narrow streets and rather dull grey buildings. But this quiet city seemed to bring out a new side in Hortense. She took some time to herself, praying, reflecting and writing incessantly. Some of this took the form of letters to King Louis and Marie's husband in support of her sister, but she also began work on her memoirs, from which I have been quoting liberally throughout this episode. She wrote them with the help of a writer named César Vichard de Saint-Royal. These memoirs, when published a few years later, were a sensation. It was the first time that a woman from the French court, not of royal blood, had written her life story and published it under her name. A few queens had done so, but no one like Hortense had ever done it before, and certainly not in such scandalous detail about their private affairs. Perhaps this is why she begins her book by saying, quote, I know that a woman's glory lies not in giving rise to gossip, but one cannot always choose the kind of life one would like to lead. She emerged from this mini-social exile when her sister returned, and she once again became the centre of attention winning many admirers, not least the Duke, who showered her with gifts, much to the displeasure of his wife. She lived a life in the eye of society. Saint-Réal wrote, quote, Although by nature she is quite private, almost every hour of the day is public for her. The most secret spots in the house are as open as the common areas for those who visit her. Her servants have become used to letting people come and go freely. But Chambéry and Hortense were soon to fall out. She was far too big a fish for this particular pond, and soon the city's people began to feel looked down on by her and her household. Feuds broke out, violent brawls in the streets. Things, though, came to a head in June 1675, when her protector, Charles Emmanuel, unexpectedly died. His successor, Victor Amadeus, was too young to rule and so his mother took control as regent. As you might imagine, she had not exactly enjoyed the company of her late husband's former beau, and so made it clear she was no longer welcome in Savoy. But where would she go? France was still far too dangerous for her. Back to Italy? Things were still rather tense there thanks to her sister's flight. No, she had another destination in mind the court of another man that had once sought her hand in marriage. Perhaps the only royal head of Europe that could match her zest for life and courting of scandal. She was headed for England.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.